Welcome to another episode of Behind the Headlines. On today's episode, Garrett Ellison, our environmental reporter, stops by to talk about his continued coverage of PFAS and its environmental impact across the state of Michigan. One of the most interesting portions of this interview comes towards the end when he's comparing the response to Rockford, Michigan's PFAS crisis and the crisis in Oscoda. I hope you enjoy the podcast. As I said, our guest for today is Garrett Ellison. We're going to be talking about all things PFAS. And my co-host, as always, Vice President of Content for MLive, John Heiner. How are you, my friend? Thank you, Eric. I am doing very well. Uh, Coming off of the Memorial Day weekend, which, as we all know, as our listeners know, is the unofficial beginning of summer in pure Michigan. And I don't know if we should cue the theme to Jaws here um, because uh, not always is everything pure in pure Michigan. Um, M Live does quite a bit of reporting on some longstanding environmental issues in Michigan. And lately we have resumed an ongoing series about the Great Lakes and some of the challenges uh, the Great Lakes region and the Midwest face. And with us today as our guest is one of the premier environmental writers in the Midwest, if, if not in my humble opinion, and a little bit biased, I think he's the best. But MLive environmental reporter Garrett Ellison is here today to talk about some of these issues. Good morning, uh, Garrett. Good morning, John. Thanks for having me on. It's great to have you on, Garrett. Um, and I think this is a very important discussion, especially when we're talking about something called forever chemicals, which is is foreboding um, as it is probably challenging to the public health. And when I say foremost expert, this is something that has you know, you've been unraveling for many, many years. You've been with them live for 13 years now. Uh, when did PFAS and some of those compounds that we're going to talk about today uh, come onto your radar as an environmental writer? Well, um, it was 2016, really. Uh, I started writing about Wordsmith Air Force Base uh, in 2016, right after there was a drinking water advisory issued for people who were on wells up there. And so that's really when they hit my radar. I had just, I had sort of started, I, actually the first time I really ever heard of them was a, a New York Times article, um, you know, that and it was the New York Times article that eventually became the basis for a movie that came out a couple of years ago called Dark Waters, um, starring Mark Ruffalo. It was about the Parkersburg, West Virginia um, situation that really ended up being sort of the underpinning of, of, of most um, PFAS and forever chemical, you know, knowledge and education and sort of the study that came out of that underpins a lot of the regulations and what we know about the health effects and stuff. So that was, was really, anyway, 2016 is when it really sort of first hit my radar and it's been a thing. <laughs> it's been a huge piece of my work ever since. Well, I've got to tell you, when we first started writing about this, because it's more than just PFAS, there's, there's some other acronyms as well. Like a lot of these things, it, it seems arcane um, and it seems like it may not have an effect on everyday life for citizens in our state. But why don't you tell our listeners the applications for these chemicals and how they were used so they get a sense of how pervasive this might be? Sure. Uh, so, it, you know, the the chemistry has been around for decades. It really sort of has its... Uh, um, origins in the Manhattan Project. Uh, it's the stuff that, I mean, Teflon, you know, it's the chemistry that under 
you know, that Teflon is, is made from and, and Scotchgard and these stain resistant, heat resistant, water resistant uh, chemicals that are, you know, sort of thought of as this uh, uh, wonder, you know, these, these, these miracles of modern science that are supposed to make life uh, better and easier for, for everybody and all kinds of apl- uh, applications. And, um, you know, they have for a long time and it wasn't, it's really only not until the last 20 some years that we've started to really, you know, the public and, 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 um, independent science, you know, outside of the manufacturers have really started to become aware of the, the health risks. Um, and so, you know, people would be familiar with this stuff if they're familiar with the brand Scotchgard, the stain was the fabric protector made from made by 3M. Mm-hmm. Um, they would be familiar with this stuff if they've ever used a nonstick uh, cookware, you know, like a Teflon pan. Um, if you have any products really that are nonstick, uh, they're using some variation of these chemicals, right? Whether so, they're so older. If I, if yeah. I a glass of red wine on my hush puppies and it cleans right off and it seems too good to be true it is too good to be true oh well i mean it 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 keeps your shoes <laughs> you know keep your i mean if if your if your uh primary concern is keeping a red wine stain off your shoes then yeah that product works really good for that but unfortunately <laughs> and i you know you mentioned hush puppies you know the manufacturer of the leather uh for those uh for those shoes resulted in some pretty significant groundwater contamination um, in Michigan. And so, you know, it's like the the products have a sort of, you know, there's a legacy associated with the products, with certain products, certain brands, certain uses of the chemistry. And, you know, that's a lot of what we're dealing with. It's certainly by no means the only thing. I mean, it's not as if legacy uses of these chemicals are the only reason, the only way they get into the environment. But, you know, there's... it's such an enormously broad topic uh, within right. the environment beat. It, it It's sort of mind-blowing sometimes. Well, and what, I would like to come back to the Hush Puppy. Uh, Wolverine uh, Worldwide, the company that, you know, was was making those in the Grand Rapids area. But, but before we do, um, one of the other uses uh, for this chemical was in the firefighting foam that if anyone has ever seen a dramatic movie where they spray the foam on the runway because the you know, planes landing gear, you know, can't come down and it's going to be a, you know, a crash landing or whatever. But firefighting, this stuff was great in a foam that puts out fires. Um, and that is kind of the lead into some of the seminal work you've done on the effects of PFAS on the environment and communities in Michigan because of uh, the former Wordsmith Air Force Base in Oscoda. So if you would, please take our listeners through that story, because you've had some recent stories, which I will link to in the column that it's going to feature this podcast this week, um, about the longstanding and unresolved issues that are occurring in the community of Oscoda on Lake Huron in northern Michigan. Hmm, sure. Yeah. So, yeah, up, up in Oscoda, if your listeners are, are familiar with Oscoda, and, and if they're not, then they should be, because it's a beautiful community. Um, it's, it's up sort of north of Saginaw Bay, uh, north of Tawas, south of Alpena on the Lake Huron uh, uh, coastline. And it's where the Osawa River mouth, uh, you know, where, where the river enters Lake uh, Huron. And it's 
it's really known for as a sort of a outdoor recreation, um, you know, paradise in some ways. The Asabo River is iconic as a trout stream. Uh, great fishing up there. Um, beautiful natural scenery. Uh, the river has these high banks, which are essentially like dunes, like you might find at the um, coast of Lake Michigan. Mm-hmm. Um, beautiful natural springs. It's it's a it's a great place uh, to to go visit, and it's sort of under. Um, underappreciated and under the radar in some ways in terms of like our pure Michigan marketing. Unfortunately, um, at the mouth of the river, uh, just before, you know, you have this iconic river gets all the way to Lake Huron. Just before it gets to Lake Huron, it passes Wurtsmith Air Force Base, which, uh, you know, has been there for decades, right? It would, you know, this base has been around for forever. Our um, era, um, the whole NORAD or distant, warning system i mean it, it was a northern outpost in america's defense system right it was a strategic air command base right and so there were nuclear bombs uh in b-52 station there mm-hmm. um and you know it's military bases are sort of known as contamination sites before pfos even became a thing they've been known as contamination sites and in fact the contamination at wordsmith is not limited by any means to pfos but um, it, PFAS has become sort of the major problem up there, and that's because in the uh, in the late '60s, early '70s, the military, along with some manufacturers, sort of developed this uh, firefighting foam that uses PFAS chemistry to uh, suppress uh, the vapors, the fuel vapors that come from a, a hydrocarbon fire, like a jet fuel fire. Mm-hmm. And it's great at just essentially it coats the fire, doesn't allow oxygen to sort of reignite it, doesn't allow, it creates a layer over the vapors. And uh, just, it's the kind of thing that saves lives and has saved lives, right? And so, uh, it, you know, the military developed it after uh, the USS Forrestal aircraft carrier fire um, in in 67, which is pretty famous for killing like 135 four sailors. Um, And, you know, it became standard use uh, at military bases and airports. And at Wordsmith, it was used to train. They trained with this stuff all the time. And they trained right next to a wetland, uh, which is just on the edge of the base. Uh, And so, you know, just the constant training with this firefighting foam, which was, you know, they lay it down and and then it just seeps into the ground. And nobody, I guess the military had some understanding at the time that it was environmentally toxic in the 70s and 80s and 90s. But um, say that, uh, oh, but public awareness or, you know, love for the earth (laughs) sentiment back in the 60s and 70s was not front of mind. No, well, I mean, we didn't even get the EPA until the early 70s, right? So, and the Clean Air Act and Clean Water Act. And so, anyway, the modern environmental movement's about the, (laughs) you know, it's only in the last 50 years that, you know, we've, you know, there's been any kind of real understanding of, you know, what the effect of things like this are on the environment. And that's only progressed to the point to where we are now, where we're starting to realize that this stuff has been used everywhere and has invaded uh, water supplies and the natural environment to a degree that they're finding traces of PFAS in the snow on top of Mount Everest, Wow! right? And in the blood of polar bears, right? I mean, these chemicals don't break down. They're meant to resist 
heat, you know, uh, you know, incredibly high pressure or uh, high temperatures. Uh, they were meant to repel water and all manner of, you know, substances as sustained and, you know, water resistant chemicals. And so they do that really well. But when they get into the environment, they just they don't naturally degrade. And when they get into your body through ingesting uh, contaminated water or food, contaminated food, um, or, you know, you breathe it in, um, it, <laughs> it, they stay in your body. And over and time, you, they accumulate and cause health problems. Yeah. What are those health problems? Just you can summarize um, what, well, what, what we're facing here. And I, I want to back up for a second because do you remember the whole dioxin um, without chemical company, the, the, what was viewed as a time as a, a real controversy and a crisis? They, they basically dug up the whole Titabawasi River mm-hmm. bed uh, because of these dioxins. But one of the you know lingering debates about the dioxin uh, um, controversy was long-term health effects. Like, you know, did it, re- you know, reproductive or cancers or whatever? There was a lot of dispute about that. What, what is indisputable about the health effects of PFAS? Well, so <laughs> I'd, hate, I'd hesitate to say that there's anything indisputable because when the lawyers get involved, and trust me, I have them e- who email me, mm-hmm. um, you know, they'll dispute anything. Um, but what, you know, the federal government through the CDC and the ATSDR, um, you know, they, they recognize that there are uh, relationships between exposure to PFAS and certain health effects. And, you know, that those would be like sort of like increased cholesterol levels, um, decreased vaccine, vaccine response in kids. Right. And so there's some concern about what the efficacy of the COVID vaccines are for people who have been exposed to high levels of PFAS. Um, high risk of blood pressure, preeclampsia, you know, in pregnant women. So they're known to cause, or they're believed to cause pregnancy sort of complications, um, decreases in infant birth weights, um, you know, when, when the baby's born, um, and, you know, then increased risk of uh, kidney and testicular cancer. So these urogenital cancers, right. And, and those are those sort of like the, 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 the main ones that the ATSDR, uh, that's sort of the toxicology arm at the CDC, uh, you know, sort of recognizes as relationships. And a lot of that actually was established through research that grew out of that Parkersburg, West Virginia uh, incident. Um, but there's, you know, there's lots of study right now over, <laughs> um, you know, what their, what their other potential health impacts are. And I think one that grabs people right now is obviously the, the impact on what uh, the efficacy of, you know, the immune system response when you get the COVID vaccine is. Mm-hmm. And so there's some people who think or there's some pretty, uh, not just people, but experts, right? Like the, the woman who, uh, Dr. Linda Birnbaum, who led the National Institutes of Health, uh, Environmental Health, um, you know, until recently, you know, the, you talk to her and she'll say, you know, we're, we're expecting that some of these people who were exposed to high PFAS levels um, through drinking water or just where they live and um, may need extra booster shots mm-hmm. um, in order to make sure that the COVID vaccine is working for them. And, and so that's one of the ones that, you know, right now seems particularly relevant given, you know, obviously, <laughs> the situation that we're in. Right. Your coverage of the Ascota community's uh, struggles 
with both PFAS and the Air Force have, have made for just excellent reporting over the last several years. I think it's been seminal and I think it stands, the community then stands as an example in a microcosm of what's really across this entire country, these chemicals were used everywhere. And two things that strike me out of the Oscoda coverage, uh, once, um, it, <laughs> as a good family story, but once my my uh, father-in-law put um, the wrong kind of detergent in the dishwasher, um, <laughs> used Dawn dish detergent, and it was kind of an I Love Lucy uh, episode moment where the, the whole kitchen kept filling with, with foam, <laughs> you know, like three feet of foam in my kitchen. And so one of the things that strikes me is it's it's heartbreaking to see in such a beautiful area of the state, but these lakes up north that are ringed with foam uh, that's that's organically now coming out of the water on the shoreline um, or in the rivers where the, where, wherever there's moving water. And the second is the anguish and frustration of the citizens of Oscoda and political leaders in dealing with the Air Force. Those those two things have been really striking to me consistently in your coverage. So so first, can can you tackle the 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 that environmental issue, that foam and what that foam represents, I mean visually, uh, and then what's under the surface. And then second, we can talk about about the whole Air Force's role in this and and how the community is struggling to deal with them. Sure. So uh you you hit you that's a really good visual there the idea of the suds coming out of the dishwasher um so imagine that but uh along the shoreline of you know the lake that you want to fish or boat or go to the beach on um it's 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 pretty the the foam gets to be pretty substantial at times uh up on uh, van etten lake uh which is sort of like the you know the northeast michigan's has traditionally been sort of seen as like the Northeast Michigan's torch Lake in some ways. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's, it's really, it's like a 1300 acre Lake. Um, it's great. You know, it's, and, and, and there's this beach right at the, uh, edge of sort of the runway, um, at, at the base, um, or former base. And what's happening is you've got the plumes coming off the base and they, uh, the groundwater is taking them right into the lake, right off the beach. And that high strength plumes with, you know, pretty high concentrations of PFAS chemicals are seeping into the lake and, and they, they, they rise to the surface and they, on, on a breezy day, uh, they tend to, there's, uh, they tend to foam up. Uh, they create like a micro layer on the surface and then the wind, uh, the force of the wind on the water pushes them towards the shore. And they kind of reconstitute in some ways into this uh, firefighting foam. I mean, that's what they started out as. Right. <laughs> and that's what, you know, that's how they, re, um, that's what mean, they it, the chemistry naturally wants to thing, do. If an inanimate thing can be heartbreaking, when you see these lakes, these pristine, well, looks like a pristine lake, then you look on the shore and visually you know exactly what's in the water. Yeah, it's, um, you know, it's not just... I want to say it's not just like these lakes up north or near. Right. It doesn't take a lot of chemicals in the water to create this foam. And I've seen this foam in other places where, you know, it's not uh, where there isn't a known source or there may be a suspected source. In fact, uh, I wrote a, you know, kind of a short post the other day when the state issued a uh, sort of advisory ahead of Memorial Day weekend. Like if you see foam out in the, the environment will just just avoid it, right? Because we don't, 
want kids touching it and playing it like like dermal contact right skin contact with the foam and and, and contaminated water isn't generally considered to be a high risk exposure route right like you're probably not going to get too harmed if you touch this stuff but kids will play with it and i've seen this kids will play with it at the beach like it'll be part of their sandcastle you know uh, making uh material and and then you know they're touching their face and stuff and um i saw this at fort custer the other day um eagle lake at fort custer state rec area down near battle creek in kalamazoo kind of near where i live and it was just real sad. You know, you had this family, uh, dad's fishing on the shoreline, mom is standing right next to her, and the daughter's off playing in the foam. You know, and I kind of went over, I said, you might want to, you might not want to let her play in that stuff. That that stuff could be, you know, it could be essentially chemicals. And, you know, you start to get in, you try to explain this stuff to, to people, and, you know, the dad is just looking at you like, who are you? Get away from me. I'm not interested in this stuff. What, go away, right? There is candy uh, called sea foam, you know? Um, right, well, and naturally occurring foam is a thing. But, you know, after, uh, after seeing this stuff at Van Etten Lake, uh, on the Rogue River, south of the Wolverine Tannery, and the, and the Huron River near the Barton Dam, right? All places you, where it's been tested, they know that this is PFAS foam. And then you start to see it elsewhere. And it's like, that's the same stuff. I mean, I don't, <laughs> or, or, uh, testing would, would confirm it, confirm it. But it, when it looks white and sudsy, right, like that stuff that comes out of the dishwasher and it's on the shoreline and it's accumulating and it stays there, right? It's not just, it's not like shoreline foam at the ocean or something that immediately just evaporates or sinks into the sand. Right, Like this stuff sticks around and if it's accumulating on the shoreline, that's a good chance that it's PFAS foam. And right. that's, I think, why the state's advising people to be careful and just avoid it because they don't want people to adjust it accidentally somehow. You're listening to Behind the Headlines, an MLive podcast. Our guest today is Garrett Ellison, environmental writer for MLive and our affiliated newspapers in Michigan. And he's an expert on environmental issues in, in Michigan. And today we're talking about compounds called forever chemicals and the effect on Michigan environment. Um, I want to go back to the second issue I raised a few minutes ago, which is the community of Oscoda's frustrations and struggles with the Air Force, which, of course, is no longer at Wordsmith Air Force Base, but is responsible for introducing these chemicals into the environment. Um, you've done quite a bit of reporting. I mean, there's been scores of meetings up there where they you know they're trying to get the air force to work with the community on remediation or or even compensation why is it so difficult to work with the air force and and where does that stand garrett well why is it so difficult to work with the air force is a question i think everybody up there is asking and has been asking for years um i ask it myself sometimes just trying to get an answer out of them uh, as a journalist um, so the base closed in 1993 and they left behind, you know, huge amounts of PFAS contamination and, um, you know, the, the state regulators, uh, are the sort of the primary regulators involved in dealing with this because the EPA is not involved at all. Um, and the Air Force is the federal government, right? And so mm -hmm. it's, it's this strange sort of conflict of interest situation where you have the polluter is, in, is also the lead agency 
in dealing with the problem. And so the state of Michigan does not have the, doesn't have the, like, just the technical firepower, the legal firepower that it, that's necessary, like that the EPA would have right. uh, to sort of force the Air Force to do more to, or, you know, issue orders that make them do stuff versus ask them, you know, and, and so the Air Force has moved very, very slowly to deal with this problem. Um, it was first discovered, um, it was actually very first discovered back in the late 90s by some academics at Oregon State, right? But, the, you know, that research was not widely known. You know, in fact, it, it, the, the state of Michigan essentially rediscovered these chemicals in 2010. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, a couple of years later, they issued fish advisories for some of the uh, waters, uh, like the wetlands and the river uh, near that. Essentially, don't need any of the fish unless unless they're fish that live most of their lives out in the lake or something. They're migratory fish. But, um, if, but if it's a if it's a bluegill, right, a bass swimming around in yeah, one of those don't. inland lakes around Oscoda, it's best to not to eat it. In fact, you, it, it, eating uh, some of these fish from some of these contaminated areas, you could be getting us from that one fish. You could get, be getting as much of a dose of these chemicals as you might get from pretty highly contaminated drinking water throughout the course of a year elsewhere. Right? I mean, it's, we're talking nine million parts per trillion in wow. some of the, the, some of this fish tissue. Just just ungodly high levels. Um, and so. You know, it's just been a real slow, excruciatingly, you know, uh, slow process, right? The Air Force uh, walks through this according to a, a federal law called CERCLA, uh, C-E-R-C-L-A. It's like the Compre- Comprehensive Environmental uh, Reform and Liability Act. I, I think I'm missing a letter out of there, but it's known as the Superfund Law. Mm-hmm. And it prescribes a very you know, laid out process. And there's lots of ways that the Air Force, which has just unlimited resources and and attorneys, uh, can just delay it. And so they have been investigating, right? Taking samples, writing reports, taking more samples, writing more reports for years. And the community up there is just fed up. They're saying, like, look, you know enough now to do something about this. And so through congressional pressure, really, through Dan Kildee uh, in the House of Representatives and Gary Peters in the Senate, have really leaned on the Air Force to start doing interim remedial actions, right? So mm-hmm. design a, a groundwater pump and tree system and put it there and deal with this hot spot, right? Don't wait until you've investigated this thing ad nauseum, you know, and the 10 years down the road, you've decided what the final, you know, uh, treatment uh, remedy is going to be for the entire base, and then you got to find the money for that, which could be in the hundreds of millions of dollars. Start dealing with some of the interim problems, like this foam on Vatnetten Lake and the contaminated marsh. And, you know, the community wants cleanup, and the community needs to see some sort of progress there because it's having issues with development. Um, well, tourism, you know, because you of this. A recent story. Um, the perception of the community in terms of attracting, you know, new businesses or residents, tourism issues. I mean, it's kind of a nice feature to be able to catch a perch and eat it, you know, uh, mm-hmm. rather than <laughs> rather than throw it back and wear rubber gloves when you're handling it. Um, and then also, Garrett, we're talking about people 
who could be 50 years old or older who've lived with this their whole lives and you know the effects on them physically you know emotionally and otherwise from being exposed to this right you know it's it's an interesting situation up there and i i spent some time i've been going up there um you know periodically for a few days at a time over the you know last several years right and um since 2016 and in April, I spent uh, more or less about a week up there across two different uh, points of time. And I really wanted to try and get at this, what is the economic impact of this stuff? What is the social impact? And what I came away with is, is you have this tourist town um, that is, in Del- you know, it's, it's, it's so economically tied to the influx of visitors in the summer, right? Not unlike everywhere <laughs> in northern in Michigan. Michigan. Right. And the, the there's a real conflict between the 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 activists who are really upset at the Air Force and they're really engaged in the issue and they're pushing, you know, the state to lean on the Air Force more and they're pushing the Congress to to uh, lean on the Air Force more. And the way they do that is by being vocal about this issue. And you've got the local tourism uh, economic um, sort of crowd going, you know what, we don't really, <laughs> could you be a little quieter about this, right? Because we, we want people to come to our area. We don't want them to read stories in the downstate media about how contaminated the waters are and then decide, well, we're going to go to Traverse City instead this summer. That's um, awesome, Traverse City, but go ahead. Right. Well, that's the thing is it's everywhere, right? And that's something that they'll very readily tell you. Um, but they'll also, you know, if you call some of these business owners up, they'll 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 be pretty quick to minimize this problem, right? Uh, oh, it's just a wetland nobody uses, and you know, and there's no problem with the river, and certainly nothing with the Lake Huron, and and to some degree they're right, right? Like if you're if you're if you want to go up to Oscoda and recreate it's in, and you spend your time on Lake Huron, you're not going to, there's really no practical effect or no reason you should be worrying about this stuff. Uh, if you're at the beach, um, if you want to use the river and you want to catch fish out of the river, you probably ought to be careful. If you're going to be anywhere where you're drinking groundwater, like mm-hmm. real well, you probably, I, you know, I wouldn't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it, it's not as if they're, you know, the, the two, and this is the argument that they say, it's not as if this PFAS stuff defines the area, right? There is more Toscota than PFAS, right? And I tried to get that across in the story. But there's an inherent conflict between the tourism sort of engine uh, up there and the, the activism that's trying to get the Air Force to do more to clean this up. Um, and so that's one component of sort of the, the way this is playing out up there. And the other is, is that it, it, it becomes a, it, having a problem like this becomes a drag in just a lot of, a lot of ways that you wouldn't necessarily expect until you really get into it and you start to look. So developers, right, are, you know, interested in the area, but it's, it's not like their first May, may not be their first uh, option, right? It's in northern Michigan. It's kind of far away from downstate uh, transportation routes and whatnot. And so, you know, that having something like this where they may need to deal with contaminated land, they may de- need to get some sort of environmental assessment done or figure out their own liability, you know, makes them skittish. Uh, even makes the state of Michigan skittish, right? Uh, um, 
I, I found this story where it really surprised me. The, the Michigan State Housing Development Authority was in, in talks with Oscoda Township to develop a modular housing project somewhere in the community, right? Because Oscoda is, is, has a serious shortage of workforce housing, right? So, you mm-hmm. know, people who are in sort of that middle class bracket and, you know, need an apartment uh, or, or sort of a house that isn't a mansion, uh, it's very hard to come by up there. Um, and so Mishta is looking at building a modular housing product project in Oscoda Township has all of this property that used to be out part of the base. Um, and so they're like, well, hey, we've got this property where the officers' quarters used to be. It's right, uh, you know, it's right there along the highway. Um, it's near Van Etten Lake. It's connected to municipal water. Uh, let's do that. Let's do it there. And the state of Michigan essentially said, no way. No, we're not doing a project on Wordsmith, uh, you know, base. We don't like the optics of that. We're worried about, you know, what that might mean for if somebody gets sick later on down the road. And so Mishta said to the Oscoda Township, you know, find another spot. And they couldn't agree because the Oscoda Township's like, well, that's where we need it. You know, we right. need these houses because there are, you know, there are people who work at this cargo airline, uh, Coletta. Coletta Air has a maintenance um, hub up there. Uh, that We need it on the base because that's where the jobs are. Mm-hmm. And so they couldn't come to an agreement. And you know, essentially, patient to build on top of, you know, soil that you know has been saturated with some of these forever chemicals. Right. And so you know, it, it it causes these housing deals and development deals to fall through. Right. And it's and there are other, you know, it there are ways where it becomes a drag on the uh, on the local finances. The Air Force is the biggest user of the township um, storm sewer system. Mm -hmm. And they discharge a lot. Like there are a couple of small treatment systems on the base that are cleaning the groundwater. I mean, they're, you know, that's a drop in the bucket of what they need to do, but it's still a lot of water gets moved and these treatment systems are discharging to the storm sewer system and the air force has never paid to use it. And so a couple of years ago, the township goes, well, you know, you're using this a lot more than you used to. Can we, can we, we'd like to start charging you. What do you think about like $3,000 a month? And the Air Force just goes, no, we don't think that's fair. <laughs> okay. And for the last couple of years, it's just been, you know what? We don't think that's fair. Try again. Wow. And, you know, they, but this is the sort of thing that, you know, it, it's not a headline story right. downstate. Right. And it requires an in-depth report and, and some time up there and some context and everything to get that sort of thing out to, you know, that information. Does the federal government still own the property? No, they, um, when the base closed, they transferred it sort of over time. There was a big, re, um, you know, a redevelopment uh, program and to transfer the, the property over time into local um, government and then private ownership. And so. Yeah, the federal government doesn't own the property anymore, but they still have, you know, responsibility uh, for what they left behind. It's just, there's a lot of ways, there's a lot of off-ramps for them with that responsibility. Right. So a couple last things here before we wrap up. Uh, Number one, what is next for specifically the Ascoda community? Where does it stand? You know, on a scale of one to a hundred before this is resolved, how far are we? 
one to a hundred, um, 60, maybe, I don't know. I hesitate to, (laughs) you know, there has been some, I mean, we're, I, I don't know, 40, 40 to 60, uh, if you had to pin me down. Um, we're, at, we're at midpoint. There's been some progress made, but yeah. res- resolution's not n- nearby. Well, so what's happening right now up there is that the Air Force is designing some stopgap some stop interim remedial um, systems, right, to, like, deal with some hot spots at uh, the, this marshland called Clark's Marsh and uh, try and stop the contamination entering the lake, you know, cut down on the foam, that sort of thing. Um, it, it just, but that stuff has been in the works for a couple of years now, right? And, and, and we're all only at the point where they're taking public comment on the design of the system. And, 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 you know, and obviously the folks who are highly engaged look at that and go, well, you're not even dealing with, you know, you're only dealing with a tiny part of the problem. Um, and you could design the system very differently. And now there's this big debate over whether or not the system has to meet the state of Michigan's discharge, you know, limitations for PFAS back into the environment because it doesn't get everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's just, it's a mess, right? And and all of this stuff, you know, just, just adds to the frustration, especially given how long it takes. And, and so we're, I, I'd say, at least a decade away from, you know, uh, significant remedials action there that a- is tackling the problem as we speak. It just that's a reminder of how glacial <laughs> bureaucracy can be, right? Yeah, it it moves very slowly, especially you know when there isn't when the Air Force has every incentive to delay and move slowly because it's not as if Wordsmith is is the only place they're dealing with this stuff. I mean, we're talking seven hundred or more military installations around the country and the world, frankly, just American military installations where the chemicals were used and have contaminated the environment. And so if, you know, they have incentives to not move fast because if they do things like, okay, we agree to be bound by the state of Michigan's uh, very strict cleanup uh, rules for PFAS, you know, that's millions of dollars more in remediation costs just in Michigan. Then we set a precedent where we have to deal with it every other base uh, at that level. Um, and so, you know, it's you talk to folks like Dan Kildee or people who are heavily involved at the national level in activism. And they say, like, this is something that Congress needs to, you know, step in and and. and and make the Air Force, um, and there there are attempts to do this, to, you know, make the Air Force, you know, through congressional action, be bound by the state of Michigan's laws. And the Biden-Harris administration needs to recognize that the Pentagon is a bad actor in this uh, in this in this um, in this space, and and there needs to be a culture change, you know, at the Pentagon around pollution issues. Right, but um, I think you, you you also hit on something is, you know, it may seem like one Air Force base and one northern Michigan outpost, but it, it's really a precedent because how many Air Force bases are there or military bases or a firefighter training centers or any of this? Um, and, you know, we have a government that, that talks in trillions of dollars when they talk about infrastructure, um, you know, uh, projects and things like that. So. I mean, it's just a matter of political will and admitting what the problem is. Is there any aspect of this, though, that the jury's out on the health effects and that somehow 
is 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 clouding the debate about what's the right thing to do. Only you know when you get down to what the 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 health impacts are at like a low levels of exposure over time, and you know there you've got the uh, chemical companies like 3M. Uh, spending huge amounts of money to muddy the waters around what the, you know, health impacts are of PFAS at relatively low levels of exposure. Um, And so, you know, that sort of um, effort creates a lot of confusion. Um, You know, I have attorneys, random attorneys, you know, who will read a story and email me to start quibbling with, you know, what this study says about, you know, the health impacts and what that study says about the health impacts and the peer, what's peer reviewed and what's not. And, you know, a lot of it is, is just, there's a real fight going on uh, around the liability um, that responsible parties like the Air Force and the manufacturers and then the, you know, uh, the users of these chemicals, you know, even corporate users of the chemicals have. And so, you know, if the responsibility levels or the safety thresholds are set very low within like the single parts per trillion range, um, you know, that costs a lot more money uh, for anyone who's, you know, ends up being responsible for this stuff, you know, in court or administratively. So, you know, it's... It's, I get this sort of described to me by researchers and experts a lot is like, these are the new PCBs, right? Mm-hmm. These are the new asbestos. And there is at no point in any of the research has the, has it started to point towards it being, towards them being less harmful, right? It's, right. It, it only goes one direction, right? And that, you know, as more is learned and more study is done, it only furthers the, you know, pretty clear notion that these things are harmful to people. And, you know, we got, we, you know, there needs to be significant action taken to reduce people's exposure through, uh, you know, regulating the products that they're used in, regulating the way that they're released into the environment and cleaning up the chemicals that are out there to the extent they can be. Right. Last thing, and I'm going to circle all the way back to something I mentioned about the hush puppies. Um, you've done some great reporting uh, about a year or so ago on the effects of, of the community of Rockford, which is near Grand Rapids, um, which where the parent, the company that was making the leather for, for hush puppy and other brands was using these chemicals, of course, because they release stains and so forth. But um, that that was another community like Ascoda that was deeply affected and all of the, the dumps and things that were used too for the products. What's the status of the community, of uh, the review of, of the extent of the pollution in that area and what's being done with it? Sure. So uh, drinking water, uh, <clears throat> drinking water mains are being extended to uh, some of the polluted neighborhoods right now. Um, that you, there's sort of midway to some degree uh, for in that project. So there is safe water being brought to people. Um, and that came as, through a, a negotiated settlement with Wolverine Worldwide and 3M through the state of Michigan and a couple local townships uh, about a year or so ago. 
Um, there's a lot of debate right now over what, how Wolverine actually cleans up the house street landfill, what they end up having to do in terms of, you know, remediation there. Wolverine wants to just plant trees over the landfill and use phytoremediation, uh, as the way to clean up, you know, tannery sludge that is 20 feet thick in some places. Um, obviously the state of Michigan isn't, you know, really probably on board with that or, uh, the local people, even in the neighborhood aren't on board with that. Um, and then there's a, uh, Wolverine is sort of in the, uh, final stages of getting approval to, uh, operate a line of extraction wells to pull the contamination out of the ground at the former Rockford tannery location. So Mm -hmm. right there uh, at the Rogue River, that would stop the bleeding of the chemicals into the Rogue River, stop the foaming at the Rockford Dam, stop, you know, just this constant stream of forever chemicals into the Rogue River, which leads to the Grand River, which leads to Lake Michigan. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, so there's actually, contrasting Rockford and Oscoda, there are things happening in Rockford, right? And that's because the EPA is involved um, and, you know, was issuing unilateral orders for cleanup, you know, during the Trump administration. <laughs> um, whereas in Oscoda, the federal government is sort of, you know, just left to its own devices and its own schedules and own prerogatives without anybody to force them to do it. Well, up in Oscoda, you got federal government on the right hand and the left hand. Right. So there's no tension there, you know? Yep. So the only tension is with the community. But the other thing is that everything you just catalog that's happening in Rockford, you know, the resources that takes, the intensity of that, and you multiply that. And like I said, I don't go back to, you know, impure Michigan, but these sites exist all over the state. So your, your reporting has really illuminated uh, the scope of this and, and what it takes, um, both politically, you know, environmentally, the actual physical work of getting clean water to people, that this is a very, very uh, multifaceted and very complex. And but overall, it's just, it's just a huge problem. And obviously, you've been reporting on it uh, for six, seven years, and it looks like decades to come. Yeah. <laughs> till your yeah. retirement. But um, thank you, Garrett, for, for joining today, but also thank you for the work that you're doing to bring these important stories to our communities around the state of Michigan. Oh, well, thank you, and uh, thanks for enabling it, John. And thank you to our listeners who joined today. And uh, again, welcome to summer in Michigan. Just watch out for the foam. Yeah, yeah, uh, it's, it's a great state. Just, yeah, that, that's good advice, essentially. Uh, watch out for the foam and know where your drinking water comes from. Well, thank you very much, Garrett, and uh, have a good summer. Yeah, you too. Thank you. And there they go. A huge thanks to Garrett for joining us today and his continued work to help make Michigan safer environmentally. If you like what John and I are doing, you know what to do. Like, review, or share wherever you are hearing this podcast. And until next week, He is John Heiner, I am Eric Hulkerin, and this is Behind the Headlines.